Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, it's cold in here. It's a crypto winter. Binance. I didn't say finance. I said Binance. The world's largest cryptocurrency exchange is struggling to hold on to assets. In the wake of the collapse of rival FTX, the handiwork of Sam Bankman-Fried, investors have been pulling their crypto in recent weeks, according to Forbes, despite assurance from Binance's CEO Changpeng Zhao that the situation is stabilized, outflows are accelerating. Customers, a couple weeks ago, a week ago, withdrew a net $360 million, according to crypto data. Uh, Another data source broke the news that Binance had lost $3 billion of assets over the previous week. So it's not looking good. Nearly a quarter of Binance assets left the exchange in less than two months. Forbes reached out to Binance seeking comments. Didn't receive a response, although they saw some bubbles. It's a crypto winter, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, welcome to the show. Shopping today for June. The wind rushed around this dirty town, and the children let out from their school. I was standing on a noisy corner. Waiting for the walking green Across the street he stood And he played real good On his clarinet for free Nobody, nobody stopped to hear him Though he played so sweet and so high They knew he'd never been on the TV screen So they passed his music to go over and ask for a song maybe put on a harmony I could still hear his refrain as the signal changed he was just playing real good for free Mm. 
from New Orleans. This is Le Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you there, too. And now... Well, chatbots are taking over. You know what they are, right? They're um, automated word spouters. The artificial intelligence chatbot, Chat GPT, has taken the world by storm, according to Nature magazine. And now it's made its formal debut in the scientific literature, racking up at least four authorship credits on published papers and preprints. Journal editors, researchers, and publishers are now debating the place of such tools in the published literature and whether it's appropriate to cite the bot as an author. Well, that's a thing. Publishers are racing to create policies for the chatbot. Then you have to ask, would the chatbot, chatbot abide by the policies? No, they, they for the people who edit and publish the publications would be following the policies. The chatbot's just doing its thing. It's a large language model, an LLM, which generates convincing sentences by mimicking the statistical patterns of language from a huge database of text collated from the Internet. It's already disrupting sectors, including academia. In particular... It's raising questions about the future of university essays and research production, as well as cheating in classrooms. Publishers and preprint servers, they print um, journal articles before they're peer-reviewed and accepted for actual publication, agree that ch- uh, AIs, such as ChatGPT, do not fulfill the criteria for a study author because they can't take responsibility for the content and integrity of scientific papers. Some publishers say that an AI's contribution to writing papers can be acknowledged in sections other than the author list. In one case, an editor told Nature that ChatGPT had been cited as a co-author in error, and the journal would correct this. ChatGPT is about one of 12 authors, is one of about 12 authors, on a preprint about using the tool for medical education in a uh, repository called MedArchive. The team behind it is uh, discussing whether it's appropriate to use and credit AI tools when writing studies. We need to distinguish the formal role of an author of a scholarly manuscript from the more general notion of uh, an author as the writer of a document, says the head of MedArchive. Arthur's authors take on legal responsibility for their work, he says, so only people should be listed. I think that's fair. There's got to be some role for people. An editorial in the journal Nurse Education and Practice this month credits the AI as a co-author, alongside Siobhan O'Connor, a health technology researcher at the University of Manchester in the UK, Roger Watson, Roger Watson, the journal's editor-in-chief, says this credit slipped through an error and will soon be corrected. 
That was an oversight on my part, he says, because editorials go through a different management system from research papers. Well, of course they do. And Alex Zakoronkov, chief executive of Insidico Medicine, an AI-powered drug discovery company in Hong Kong, credited ChatGPT as a co-author of an article in the journal Oncoscience last month. He says his company has published more than 80 papers produced by generative AI tools. Generative meaning they create either text or images. The editors-in-chief of Nature and Science say ChatGPT doesn't meet the standard for authorship, and attribution of authorship carries with it accountability for the work, which cannot be effectively applied to large language models, says Magdalena Skipper, editor-in-chief of Nature in London. We would not allow AI to be listed as an author on a paper we published, and a use of AI-generated text without proper citation could be considered plagiarism. That's the comment from Holden Thorpe, editor-in-chief of the Science family of journals in Washington, D.C. It's a family. And that does raise the question of whether bots that create new images based on already existing artwork are engaging in plagiarism, but that's a question for another time. Meanwhile, a 2016, also news of the smart world, a 2016 video that Tesla used to promote its self-driving technology was staged to show capabilities like stopping at a red light and accelerating at a green light that the system did not have. This is Reuters quoting testimony by a senior engineer, not a junior engineer. The video, which remains archived on Tesla's website, was released in October of 2016 and was promoted on Twitter, (laughs) by Elon Musk as evidence that, quote, Tesla drives itself, unquote, Elon Musk in 2016. But the Model X was not driving itself with technology Tesla had deployed. That's the word from Ashok Eluswarmi, director of autopilot software Tesla, Uh, He's saying it in a transcript of a July deposition taken as evidence in a lawsuit against Tesla for a 2018 fatal crash involving a former Tesla engineer. The previously unreported testimony by Eluswamy represents the first time a Tesla employee has confirmed and detailed how the video was produced. The video itself carries a tagline saying, The person in the driver's seat is only there for legal reasons. He is not doing anything. The car is driving itself. Unquote. Eluswamy said Tesla's autopilot team set out to engineer and record a demonstration of the system's capabilities at Musk's request. Eluswamy, Musk, and Tesla did not respond to Reuters' request for comment. However, the company has warned drivers they must keep their hands on the wheel and maintain control of their vehicles while using, quote, autopilot, unquote. Its features do not make the vehicle autonomous, the company says on its website. To create the video, the Tesla used 3D mapping on a predetermined course 
from a house in Menlo Park, California, to Tesla's then-HQ in Palo Alto. Drivers intervened to take control in test runs when trying to show the Model X could park itself with no driver. A test car crashed into a fence in Tesla's parking lot. Quote, the intent of the video was not to accurately portray what was available for customers in 2016. It was to portray what was possible to build into the system, Eliswamy testified. When Tesla released the video, Musk tweeted, quote, Tesla drives itself, no human input at all, through urban streets to highway to streets, then finds a parking spot, unquote, Elon Musk. Tesla faces lawsuits and regulatory scrutiny over its driver assistance systems. New York Times in 2021 reported that Tesla engineers had created the video to promote autopilot without disclosing the route had been mapped in advance or that a car had crashed in trying to complete the shoot, citing anonymous sources. When asked if the 2016 video showed the performance of the Tesla autopilot system available in a production car at the time, Ellis Farmy said, It does not. His deposition occurred in a lawsuit against Tesla over a 2018 crash in Mountain View that killed engineer Walter Huang. The lawyer who represents Wang's widow told Reuters it was obviously misleading to feature that video without any disclaimer or asterisk. The asterisk would have been good. The asterisk would also be a good name for a model of the car. You'll feel like it's driving when you're sitting in an asterisk. The uh, fatal crash was likely caused by Wang's distraction and the limitations of autopilot. Eloswami said drivers could fool the system, making a Tesla system believe they were paying attention based on feedback from the steering wheel when they weren't. But he said he saw no safety issue with autopilot if drivers were paying attention. Auto drivers, I guess. And... Finally, in news of a smart world, an Australian personal trainer's Apple Watch inadvertently summoned 15 police to a suspected shooting that wasn't. This is from the British tech journal The Register. Sydney man, like Florida man, but from Sydney, Jamie Elaine was running a boxing class with a client punching away at pads on his hands. As the client pounded the pads, sufficient force was imparted to activate Apple's Siri voice assistant due to the pressure of his wrist against the watch. Elaine said he took off his watch because Siri kept interrupting and could not make sense of instructions he issued his client to punch in certain combinations, like one, one, two, which happens to be down under, an emergency telephone number. Those instructions included remarks about the quality of the client's Shots, boxing parlance for punches. Unbeknownst to Elaine, Siri had jumped to conclusions, and soon police and ambulances were swarming the gym where he was uh, holding his session. Elaine posted images of the boys in blue to his Instagram. He later told news.com.au he has since disabled Siri 
on his Apple Watch. It's a smart, 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 smart world. Now news of the godly. Deadline Rome. The Vatican has ordered a prominent French priest who advised the Vatican for years on matters of sex and homosexuality to cease his psychotherapy practice. This follows allegations that he sexually abused men in his care. It's from the AP. But the Vatican didn't defrock or otherwise sanction the the, uh, Reverend Tony Anatrella. This despite several well-documented complaints against him. In further evidence of the Holy See's reluctance to punish priests who abuse adults with the harshest measures... And this, um, especially when the crimes occurred a long time ago. French and Catholic media over the years have reported claims by several men and seminarians who were sent to Anatrella because they exhibited homosexual tendencies, only to then be allegedly subjected to sexualized therapy with him. Anatrella had been considered one of the Catholic Church's foremost experts on homosexuality and had served as a consulting member of the Vatican's Family and health offices. Church teaching considers homosexual acts to be intrinsically disordered. And the Vatican in 2005 issued a policy aimed at keeping men with so-called deep-seated homosexual tendencies from becoming priests. In a statement this week, the Paris Archdiocese noted that the French justice system hadn't prosecuted Anatrella criminally because the allegations against him exceeded, say it with me now, the statute of limitations. The uh, statement said the Vatican's dicastery, ouch, sounds painful, for the doctrine of the faith which handles abuse cases issued one measure against Anatrella after a church trial initiated in 2016 to immediately renounce all professional activities as a therapist. Additionally, the Paris Archdiocese formally asked Anatrella to cease all publications. He is the author of over a dozen books on gender studies, marriage, and family life. It forbade him from hearing confession and asked him to lead a reserved life of prayer. The request was merely a warning under the penalty of canonical sanctions, suggesting even the archdiocese was unwilling or unable to impose harsher penalties on him. The newspaper of the Italian Bishops' Conference, Aveniri, had reported in 20. 18, that Anatrella's church lawyers had argued that he committed no canonical crimes. The Vatican has norms for sanctioning priests who sexually abuse minors up to and including removing them from the priesthood. And the Vatican regularly waives the statute of limitations for cases involving abuse of minors. But the Vatican's in-house legal code has only recently begun to recognize abuses against adults and the abuses of authority and spiritual abuses that often accompany some such crimes. Meanwhile, the Archbishop of Canterbury will not personally use proposed new prayers to bless same-sex couples, the Church of England said this week. It wants to offer blessings to gay couples 
but would not allow priests to marry them. The Archbishop, Justice Justin Welby, said he celebrates the change but has a, quote, responsibility for the whole communion, unquote. Church also, at the same time, issued a formal apology for the, quote, shameful times it had rejected or excluded LGBTQI plus people. In contrast to Archbishop Welby's stance, the Archbishop of York says he will offer the prayers, which he believes puts the church in a better place. He became tearful as he made his statement. Easy there, Archbishop. Earlier this week, bishops told the BBC the church would not change a teaching to allow priests to marry same-sex couples, but that it will offer, quote, prayers of dedication, thanksgiving, or God's blessing, unquote, to gay couples following a civil marriage or partnership. Their proposal will be debated at the church equivalent of Parliament, the General Synod, next month. Same-sex marriage has been legal in England and Wales for um, more than a decade, but when the law changed, the church, which is the established church in in Great Britain, did not alter its teaching. Archbishop Welby told a press conference this week he would continue to pray for all those who come seeking prayer and to pray with love, including those who are gay, straight, or who had worries about their relationships. But I will, while being extremely joyfully celebrating, celebratory of these new resources, I will not personally use them in order to compromise pastoral care. The Archbishop of York says the... uh, I'm really pleased it's changing for my gay friends, although he acknowledges the change is not enough for some people. I wasn't expecting, he says, to get emotional, but I am, because I think it puts the Church of England in a better place. Asked if he will offer blessings, unlike Archbishop Welby, he said, yes, I will. I mean, I completely support and understand Archbishop Justin's position, but his position is different from mine. Hmm? News of the Godly. Let me tell you about the bees. Yeah. Now let me tell you about the bees. Tests currently used to assess the safety of insecticides are inadequate. Bees may potentially be affected more than previously thought. This is uh, from the UK Press Association. Researchers from Queen Mary University of London, Q-Mule, found that bees have different versions of a nerve cell receptor that is targeted by insecticides. The experts said their findings, published in the journal Molecular Ecology. Tom? Molecular Ecology. Mm-hmm. Very close. Suggest it may be impossible to accurately predict the impacts of insecticide exposure on bees. Angela Witwicka, lead author of the study and a researcher at KMUL, said, We already knew the um, insecticides can harm beneficial pollinators by affecting their behavior, their memory, their dexterity, their immunity, and their ability to reproduce. We now also know why insecticide can harm pollinators in so many different ways, unquote. 
the most commonly used insecticides, which include neonicotinoids, target a, ner- target a nerve cell receptor known as a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. I'd like to receive some of that. These receptors are essential for the transmission of signals between nerve cells. Experts say insecticide safety evaluations have not taken into account that bees may have different versions of these receptors in different parts of the body. This shows that all parts of a bee could be affected by insecticide exposure, according to the researchers. The team also found that in different tissues, this receptor is made using different components. Well, you use what you got. The researchers said major differences are also seen between bees of different ages and between species. Professor Yannick Worm, who was also lead author of the study, said, quote, previous work showed that receptor composition affects susceptibility to the insecticides. He continues, we now found that receptor composition varies between tissues and between species, given the variation we see in the neural receptor. Any conclusion about safety is premature. The testing process is too crude as is, unquote. Matt Shardlow, chief executive of the Bug Life Charity, not involved in the study, said, despite the huge negative impact on wild pollinator caused by neonicotinoid pesticides, the lessons have not been learnt. That's how you know he's a Brit. And the pesticide approval processes have not been improved. This research underlines the importance of testing the impacts of pesticides on a range of bee species and life stages before chemicals that can cause huge damage to nature are released into the environment. Told you about bees. I've been willing to curse the light 
From New Orleans, this is Le Show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Atom. The head of the United Nations nuclear watchdog says this week he was worried that the world was becoming complacent about the considerable dangers posed by the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia atomic plant in Ukraine. Russian forces captured the plant, Europe's largest, last March. It uh, has repeatedly come under fire as the plant in recent months, raising fears of, you know, a nuclear disaster or something. Rafael Grossi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, is working to set up a safe zone around the facility, which would be nice, Rafael Grossi says. Speaking to reporters in Kiev, or Kiev, he said a nuclear accident could happen any day and uh, reiterated the situation the plant was, quote, very precarious. I worry this is becoming routine. The people may believe that nothing has happened so far, so is the director general of the IAEA crying wolf, he said when addressing reporters during his visit to Ukraine. It, an accident, can happen any time, and my duty is to do everything I can to prevent that from happening. The IAEA says it has a permanent presence of up to four experts at Zaporizhia. I guess that means some of them get to leave occasionally. Coffee in Romania, perhaps. Deadline Tokyo, the head of a UN nuclear agency task force assessing the safety of Japan's plan to release treated radioactive water from the wrecked Fuk plant into the sea, said this week Japanese regulators have shown their commitment to comply with international safety standards. International concern over the plan has been widening. Last week, the head of the 18-nation Pacific Island Forum, which includes your Australia, your New Zealand, and other island nations, expressed concern about any impact of radiation from the water on the livelihoods of people in the region a region which suffered in the not-so-distant past from atomic bomb tests and urged Japan, did the uh, head of the Pacific Island Forum, to suspend the plan. Quote, Forum Secretary General Henry Puna, the region is steadfast in its position that there should be no discharge until all parties verify through scientific means that such a discharge is safe, unquote. The U.S. National Association of Marine Laboratories, more than 100 labs, also expressed opposition to the plan, saying there was a lack of adequate and accurate scientific data supporting Japan's assertion of safety. Gustavo Caruso, the head of the International Economic Energy Agency Task Force, said his team visited the damaged Fuk plant this week, witnessed the first of a series of inspections by the Japanese Nuclear Regulation Authority before it gives its final go-ahead for the release of the tainted water. He said officials from the authority addressed all questions raised by the task force, showed their commitment to following safety standards. Japan's government says the release is likely to begin sometime in the spring or summer and continue for decades Decades of tritium-tainted water being dumped into the Pacific. 
At the request of Japan, the IAEA is reviewing whether the reparations for the discharge, I think they mean the preparations, comply with international standards. The government and TEPCO say the tanks must be removed so that facilities can be built for the plant's decommissioning. The tanks are expected to reach their capacity of 1.37 million tons of water later this year. That's probably why it's going to take years to dump it in the ocean. 1.37 million tons. By the way, this uh, story from the AP repeats what uh, I've shared with you on occasion, that the tritium cannot be removed from the water, but other, well, most of the radioactivity is removed. It now, for the first time that I see, adds that low levels of some other radionuclides also remain. Doesn't say what they are or will be. The government and TEPCO say the environmental and health impacts will be negligible because the water is going to be released gradually and diluted by large amounts of seawater. Some scientists say the impact of long-term low-dose exposure to tritium and those other radionuclides on the environment and on humans is still unknown and the release should be delayed. They say tritium affects humans more when it's consumed by fish first. Local fishing communities have fiercely rejected the plan. I guess they don't think that's a good advertisement. Eat fish, get more tritium. They're saying their badly hurt businesses, already badly hurt, will suffer again due to the negative image from the water release. Neighboring countries, including China and South Korea, have also raised concerns about potential health risks. And there's a new reason for delay. You need a reason to delay completing a nuclear plant? I don't think so, but they got one anyway. Vibration issues revealed last week inside one of the two nuclear units of plant Vodal in uh, Georgia. The vibrations occurred because critical pipe support bracing didn't happen to be installed. Witnesses at a state hearing revealed that this week, calling the omission unusual and foreshadowing the possibility of more delays as testing on the uh, new units progresses. Another witness panel before the Public Service Commission questioned the value of the entire project and presented testimony showing Georgia Power's customers will pay far more for electricity in years to come as a result of the Votal plant's delays and cost overruns. Last Friday, federal regulators at the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, echoed the company's Georgia Power's assessment that the problem was not a danger to the public. It was an apparent construction oversight. Piping support in two of the four paths within the automatic depressurization system, which provides a critical layer of protection against potential accidents. The Georgia Public Service Commission staff's lead analyst on uh, the new units 
gave that testimony. At the end of the day, if safe shutdown cannot be achieved, these things will blow and flood containment, he said. Containment is the heavily fortified metal and concrete structure built around the nuclear reactor. William Jacobs, who conducted oversight of the Vodal Project for the Public Safety Commission since 2009, said it's common for issues to surface in nuclear plants during startup testing, but the fact that critical braces for piping were apparently not installed to begin with is surprising, he said. That's not abnormal, but it is abnormal to determine that critical piping components per the design were not installed, he said. That's Rather unusual. See, Tom Jones? The um, plant was supposed to be providing electricity by the end of March. As a result of this latest snag, Georgia Power now says that the unit won't be online until April, but it's possible the date could be pushed back again. Each month, a delay that results could increase the cost of the project by $15 million dollars. That could also drive up the rates customers pay for the electricity in the future. The complication is the latest headache for a project that has been plagued by delays and enormous cost cost overruns. Both units are more than six years behind schedule. Their total price tag has climbed above $30 billion, more than double what was initially forecast. A panel of Public Safety Commission staff did a review of the steadily rising cost to the eventual consumer of the electricity. That cost burden, they say, now outweighs the benefits. The cost increases have significantly reduced the economic benefit of the units on a cost-to-complete basis and have completely eliminated any benefit on a life-cycle cost basis, they concluded. Clean, cheap, safe... Too cheap to meter, our friend the Adam. And now news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. An army of not authorized immigrant workers is preparing next year's Olympic Games in Paris. It's being put together with the help of illegal workers. It's becoming a source of political and social tension in France. One Malian immigrant worked eight to 11 hour shifts for. 80 euros a day. Overtime was never paid, said one about his situation. I accept it because I know my situation. If you don't have papers, you do all the hard work, all the crappy jobs. You have no choice. Everyone knows what's going on, but nobody talks about it. Another Malian worker talking about it said, All these beautiful stadiums are built by poor people who are exploited. It's always 80% immigrants who do the work. You see Malians, Portuguese, Turks, and the French 
he added, in the offices. Well, that's the way it was in the World Cup. Or should the Olympics be any different? And the lack of air conditioning in the rooms of the athletes' village for the 2024 Olympics is raising concerns from some federations and athletes. The village will accommodate nearly 14,000 athletes and staff members in July and August of this of, uh, 2024. Games organizers have promised the event will be carbon neutral. The uh, village will be converted into housing after the games. Said the head of Solideo, which is constructing the Olympic buildings and employing the uh, illegal immigrants, quote, we're building rooms where it'll be six degrees cooler than the outside temperature during the summer, he told the news conference. If the local organizing committee later demands air conditioning, there will be air conditioning, he said while cautioning that that would affect the carbon footprint. He says, it's a question for society. Do we collectively accept being at six degrees Celsius less and having an excellent carbon footprint, or do we say it's not okay and we're ready to downgrade the carbon footprint? That's uh, 11 degrees Fahrenheit. Possibility of another scorching summer with temperatures in the hundreds has been taken into account. That's what organizers said last year. But the reassurances have not appeased everyone. It's pretty crazy these scenarios have not led to any changes, says a high-ranking French sports officials. Olympic organizers have chosen to make 2024 an ecological project, said another sporting figure. But the event of a heat wave the well-being of the athletes is not be taken into account, unquote. Some sports federations are already looking for solutions, including finding accommodations elsewhere. If they continue like this, they will empty the village, she added. <laughs> and they're thinking of using floor fans because it's a movement. And we all need one. The University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and their health plan apologized this week for a glitch that sent dozens of marketing emails to many customers late this week. Social media was ablaze, according to the Pittsburgh Business Times. I've gotten over 20 messages in the last hour, one user wrote. Others on Reddit and Twitter said they had received between 33 and 116. The emails had subject lines ranging from flu season is here and so is, so is UPMC Anywhere Care to be healthy for the holidays, get your flu shot, to join us on May 22 to celebrate women's health and spring into wellness. UPMC said on Twitter it was aware of the problem with the emails and was working to correct it. it told the Business Times Friday morning it had been fixed. 
An email issue occurred last evening, causing individuals on our list to receive various marketing-related messages. A spokeswoman said, this issue has been resolved. We apologize for any inconvenience, unquote. Dateline London, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak apologized this week for taking off his seatbelt to film a social media video in a moving car. A spokesman said Sunak made an error of judgment while filming a message for Instagram from the back of an official government car during a visit to northwest England. Hey, he visited the north. Let a man alone. Spokesman Jamie Davies said the Prime Minister fully accepts this was a mistake and apologizes. The Prime Minister believes everyone should wear a seatbelt, he said. Failing to wear a seatbelt is punishing in the UK by a fine of up to £500 or $620. I bet he's got it on him. And the BBC has apologized for not properly challenging the views of a vaccine skeptic who claimed on the air that COVID jabs cause heart damage. In a statement, the UK broadcaster said it should have been better prepared for a live exchange with Dr. Asim Malhotra, given his history of promoting vaccine hesitancy. The interview took place on the BBC News Channel when he hijacked a conversation about cholesterol medication to claim that coronavirus vaccines carry a cardiovascular risk. He was virtually unchallenged by the host, Luquisa Burak, who simply asked, That's uh, been proven medically, has it? Malhotra replied, There's lots of data to support his claim before calling for the suspension of the vaccine rollout. The BBC said, quote, We agreed we should have been better prepared to challenge what Dr. Malnotra said, given his past comments about the vaccination program, and we're sorry that this did not happen. Unquote. The guy with the fake accent. Dateline San Francisco, a Bay Area Rapid Transit director has apologized for using racist language during a board meeting after a talk on racial equity. John McPartland has been a BART director since 2008. He's also a member of the NAACP. The 78-year-old said the phrase, cotton-picking inspirational, in response to a presentation on BART's racial equity work. He spoke to the San Francisco Standard about the incident and apologized. He admitted the use of racist language, but pleaded ignorance. I quote, I'm quite frankly mortified I would cause that much grief to anybody that I hold in that much respect. I plead ignorance, and I ended up having a talk with the deputy general manager who gave me a quote out of a dictionary for the term that identified a degree of sensitivity for the African-American community. I'm sincerely sorry. I'm acknowledging my ignorance and sincerely apologize. And that's the cotton pick and trick. No, he didn't. Didn't say that. Another BBC apology apologized after pornographic noises were played on the air during live coverage of a soccer match, apparently via a mobile phone, that a prankster had hidden in the studio. The noises interrupted the coverage presented by former England soccer player Gary Lineker before a a match 
on Tuesday. He later posted on Twitter a picture of a cell phone that he said has been taped to the back of the set inside the stadium. As sabotage goes, it was quite amusing, he said. But I prefer sabotage. No, that's somebody else. The BBC appeared to be less amused and issued a statement saying, we apologize to any viewers offended during the live coverage of the football this evening. A self-described YouTube prankster tweeted that he was behind the stunt, posted a video showing him calling the phone to activate the sounds. He'd been banned in in October from all sporting events in England and Wales for two years after running under the pitch during a cricket match. I guess they thought it wasn't cricket. Sorry about that. Waukesha Police Chief Daniel Thompson, this is Waukesha, Wisconsin, issued a statement apologizing after a firearm was discovered in his bag at the airport. Thompson said he was traveling in an official capacity to a conference to share Waukesha's experiences at the Christmas parade a year ago. Before he left, he was working and did not check his carry-on bag that had his firearm in it, he said. The gun, gun was found at Milwaukee's airport just before noon on Tuesday at a security screening. He was given a $767 fine. He said he explained to authorities his lapse in judgment when it came to double-checking his bags that he usually carries for work. I cooperated with their internal review of the incident. I'm embarrassed in the situation and hold myself responsible. I believe in accountability and will be held accountable for the situation. I also understand that I am human and make mistakes. I'm sorry for the negative attention that this brought not only to me, but for the amazing community I serve at the city of Waukesha Police Department. Unquote. And speaking of sports, ESPN sports commentator Stephen A. Smith, who makes a living giving hot takes, usage there from the L.A. Times, is backtracking after his dig at pop musician Rihanna riled fans during a, an appearance during Sherry Shepard's Fox daytime talk show. Smith was asked about Rihanna's upcoming Super Bowl halftime show. Ladies and gentlemen, she's a lot of things. She's spectacular, actually, and congratulations on new mamahood, Smith said of the Fenty founder before drawing applause for the crowd. There's one thing she's not. She ain't Beyonce. The crowd erupted into a wave of groans and boos with sparse cheers. We know she's not Beyonce, the host of the show said. After Smith tried to clarify by mentioning uh, Beyonce's previous Super Bowl performances, Shepard said, Beyonce performed, but she's had her time. Now it's Rihanna. After intense reaction online, Smith posted an apology video to his Twitter account where he said he meant it as no respect. He called Rihanna phenomenal and a sister and said she's going to be great during the performance. I don't know how he knows that yet. I want Rihanna know to, to know you're a superstar, you're sensational, you're spectacular, you're no joke, and you're a worthy person to be doing the Super Bowl halftime show, said Stephen A. Smith, who captioned his Twitter mea culpa. Apologies to Rihanna for my words. Gotta be more careful. Unquote. 
The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time on these same radio stations or on your audio device of choice. Whenever you want it, just call me. I'll come over and do it for you. And it would be just like not doing that if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead. And to uh, Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. And boy, did it need it. The email address for this program still exists. 
It leads you to harryshearer.com. whole lot of stuff there, including the playlist for these shows and your chance to get Cause I Talk t-shirts. Ask your dad. The show comes to you through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.